Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. The unusual and hard to explain data for the U.S. economy throughout the course of 2023 has at times puzzled both investors as well as the markets. Might the 2023 macro landscape be indicative of a roaring 20s macro regime? Joining me here on the podcast today to weigh in on this very question, glad to welcome back Jason Drake the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Uh, Jason, thank you for dropping by top of the morning today. Uh, Welcome back. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here again. Absolutely. So, uh, Jason, I know you recently wrote a report on this very question, so maybe that's a good place to start. Why are you even asking this question, Jason, whether this could be a roaring 20s decade? What exactly is motivating that question now? Well, it might seem an odd time to be asking this, given concerns about potentially going to recession, high interest rates, geopolitical problems. But it's also, we're coming off a quarter where the U.S. economy grew 4.9%, when at the start of the year, the consensus view was that the U.S. economy would be in a recession uh, you know, by the summer into the fall. Interest rates have also reached their highest level in 16 years, with the 10-year you know, briefly touching 5%. Again, the consensus view at the start of the year is that the 10-year would end up around 3%. So expectations on January 1 versus where we are right now have gone completely different. So that's a, well, you know, that kind of asks a question, say, what's, what's driving it? It can't just be you know, lagged effects of the you know, policy stimulus or, or pandemic recovery. There's something else perhaps going on. So when we think about the regime, we're talking about more in 20s. The way we kind of distill it down is from a macro perspective, you're looking at the growth rate, inflation, interest rates. Um, you know, all of them right now are quite a bit higher than they were the last decade, the 2010s. Uh, and it looks like there could be at least some permanent shift higher. You know, really the question is like just how much higher and how long will it last? That's kind of gets into the question, like will there be a roaring at 20s or not? Another thing is that we know that there are structural changes to the economy as a result of the pandemic. So there's a kind of a pre and post pandemic you know, behavioral change. Some of that is you know, pretty obvious and it's not going to reverse. Return to office, the most prominent, right? Like, you know, we're, we're, whatever we will be, you know, going forward, this is kind of probably where we are right now. That has implications for how people live their lives, spend, consume, that again could have some cases kind of lasting impacts in the same way in which companies are organized and run. So you have a different kind of economic data situation that wasn't expected. You have structural changes for sure to the economy, some maybe more than I've alluded to. So I think all this means that we at least have to ask the question whether we're in a different regime that could consist of like higher growth, higher inflation and higher rates relative to what we've been used to for at least you know, 10 to 15 years. Uh, and it's not just a purely intellectual or academic question. When we do ask allocation, you know, the kind of the starting point, the foundation for a lot of it is the macro regime, because whatever macro environment you have, that's going to be highly influential on both the absolute and relative asset class total returns, as well as some of the risk properties. So if we don't at least give this serious consideration when it might seem to a lot of people this is not even plausible, we may be completely missing how we need to think about allocating for the rest of this decade. So I think it is part of good research and due diligence to kind of work through this scenario. And if not this scenario, then what other scenario could play out? So, Jason, just diving a bit deeper, the subtitle of the report jumped out at me, that being it depends on the supply side. And throughout the report, there is a lot of discussion on supply factors. So, Jason, why is the supply side so important for the outlook? Well, if you think about what's already happened almost now four years into the 2020s, it really has been a story of supply side. 
you know, the pandemic hit and we had all sorts of supply chain you know, problems. Uh, a lot of them have kind of uh, have worked themselves out, but that was for 2020, 21, even into 22, that was kind of a defining story. Now, those may have been mostly resolved, but then we have questions about lack of labor, you know, the challenge of hiring, housing shortages. Uh, those are going to be continue to be challenges uh, in terms of supplying goods and workers uh, in the economy going forward, uh, as well as things like, uh, you know, uh, deglobalization, changing supply chains. Uh, this is really different than it was in the 2010s. I think you have to think about you know, the context of that decade. It was coming out of a global financial crisis where the financial system practically melted down, a very deep recession, like the, the deepest basically since the Great Depression. Uh, and the story of the, uh, the 2010s really was about insufficient demand. It took many years for households to kind of repair their balance sheets after they, you know, were hit hard by the, the crisis. They may have lost their homes. Uh, their debt levels were too high. So as a result, to repair their balance sheets, that meant that demand in the private sector just wasn't very strong, and we didn't really get a huge fiscal you know, response as a result. Uh, on the other hand, like supply was, was quite abundant. Unemployment was high at the start. It took many years, not until about 2017, 18, when the unemployment rate got close to even like kind of 4%. You had a lot of excess housing at the start before that was kind of whittled away. Spare capacity in the production side of the economy was ample until, again, you know, almost the end of the decade. So it was a lack of demand, not a supply story the last decade. This decade feels like it's going to be much more about, uh, you know, about the supply side. Now, I talked about maybe you know, labor shortages, housing shortages, things of that sort. But the story isn't all negative for this decade on the supply side. To get a Roaring Twenties you know, regime for multiple years, it really is going to hinge on improvements on the supply side. Uh, we get a potential a lot of investment, and there's reasons to, you know, why that can happen. That can lead to productivity gains uh, through various investment and technological developments. So not only have there been supply problems thus far, and some will linger, but some of those problems are going to create and force companies and the, you know, the economy overall to come up with solutions that could actually lead to supply-side improvement. And really the premise of the Roaring Twenties kind of scenario, in my mind, comes down to improvements on the supply side. Demand should actually be okay. Households came out of the pandemic in really good financial shape. And while there's certainly some upticking of, you know, some delinquency rates on credit cards and, you know, getting at the margin, it's more difficult for some people given high interest rates, the overall story for households is still you know, quite solid. So it's, demand shouldn't be the issue this decade, at least relative to the last decade. It's going to be a supply side story. We're, of course, speaking in 2023, looking a bit further out as the balance of the decade takes shape. It's interesting within the publication, Jason, you do suggest uh, that several megatrends will impact the economy and thus the regime in coming years. Can you take a few moments to walk us through what those megatrends are? Well, we group uh, them into four kind of categories. And, and these ideas, some of them are certainly you know, out there. They're kind of widely cited. We just maybe kind of framed it a little bit different. The first megatrend is what we define as sort of a capex boom, meaning seeing a lot of investment you know, in the private sector, uh, and it really kind of driven by the fact that there's been uh, an underinvestment or not a real capex cycle last decade again because supply was abundant, demand was weak, so there's maybe a need to replace existing capital stock, uh, and then there's also just the labor problem. You know, companies can't hire workers. In basic economics, you can produce things either with capital or labor. If you can't get labor or it's expensive, you substitute it with capital. Um, and I think that could begin to be the sort of the story of this decade, leading to kind of a capex surge in a way that we haven't seen in, in many, many years. So that's one capex boom is one megatrend. The green energy transition is a second. 
you know, this is well documented that a substantial amount of investment has to be done in, in the U.S. and globally you know, over multiple decades. Uh, and this is going to have complicated implications for both energy supply and demand. So that's kind of one mega trend. A third one is what we call security deglobalization. We are living in now in a more of a multipolar world. And for a lot of countries, including the U.S., the need to secure vital resources, whether it's supply chains, you know, certain commodities, things of that sort, that's going to require a fair amount of investment. Um, and even just physical security, like you know, military spending, defense spending, we've, we're seeing kind of you know, pickups there. And the fourth mega trend is artificial intelligence, AI. Uh, you know, deploying AI across industries, uh, you know, will have an impact. It is ultimately AI that is a positive supply side story. If you give people this technology uh, and companies, presumably they're going to be able to produce more with less effort. So it's a positive story, uh, but it's a highly uncertain one of, you know, when this could play out, what kind of labor market impact it have, but it's clearly going to be a story you know, as we move further into this decade and beyond. So those four are the mega trends, CapEx boom, green energy transition, security and deglobalization, and AI. So Jason, with these four mega trends in mind, what do you think is actually necessary to occur for a roaring 20s regime to actually come to fruition? Well, there's a lot of different assumptions you can make that say these are necessary. We kind of focus in on, on five kind of conditions or factors that we think are sufficient for Roaring Times scenario to play out, but our conviction level kind of varies, and I'll kind of go in sort of highest conviction to lowest conviction. And the first is on inflation. You know, that's one of the key, or one of the three uh, you know, variables that we look at as defining the regime, growth, inflation, and rates. What we assume is that inflation will ultimately be contained, uh, you know, once it falls kind of below 3%, gets between like 2 to 3%, that the, the it's not gonna go much above 3% with, for any sustained time period. Uh, some of that is just maybe the actual economic activity might not be sufficient to generate significant inflation. But most fundamentally, we just assume the Fed, once it gets it to that level, will tolerate inflation over 2%, but not over 3%. And if that looks like it's happening, they will tighten policy and bring it down. And if, and if it has to cause a recession, they will do so. So we actually feel you know, reasonably convicted that's going to be you know, the outcome. Where we have less conviction is like what's the growth and interest rate environment that's going to be consistent with inflation being between sort of two to three percent. So that's one factor. And next factor is again sort of feeling reasonably confident that we'll get large investment across the economy. You know the, the capex boom, these other mega trends. Uh, you know they should all lift growth uh, to some extent. Just as you invest, you're like that's a positive for economic activity, and it becomes the basis for productivity growth. So I think. Seen a lot of investment across the economy for the rest of this decade. I think that's something that we have you know, pretty high confidence in. It's a necessary condition for this Roaring Twenty scenario. Another factor is it does seem like the economy is a little bit more dynamic post-pandemic. You know, entrepreneurial activity and sort of risk-taking seem like they've shifted higher, uh, especially after in the 2010s. There was a lot of talk about the U.S. economy losing dynamism, being less, uh, you know, sort of productive. I think the pandemic again changed. You know, behavior of individuals in their lives, but also maybe in, in sort of business activity. Um, and again, that that could benefit productivity growth. Uh, and you see, like the other factor is, you know, policy. We're assuming at worst it's going to be a mild headwind. It doesn't have to be overly supportive. Um, you know, but I think it's it's also we're not assuming it's going to require drastic you know restrictions in terms of fiscal or monetary policy or even you know other policies on like, you know, geopolitics or things like that would be negative for supply chains. So we're not requiring it to be really supportive, but mostly we're saying it's not going to be a major headwind. Uh, and then like the final set of condition and the one where it's uh, out of the five of them have the least conviction is that productivity has growth has to increase. 
Uh, and we think that will happen partly because it's coming from a low base. For the prior decade, productivity growth has been around 1%, a little bit over most estimates of long-term trend growth, which is just a sum of productivity growth and the growth of your labor force has productivity growth around one and a quarter percent. For context, from the mid-1990s to the mid-2000s, it was increasing over two, two and a half percent. So even a small increase seems plausible given the investment, uh, but there is an upside skew. And this really kind of comes from, you know, how soon could AI you know, really lift kind of productivity in different parts of the economy and by what magnitude? There are estimates that are very modest to others that are saying this could be truly kind of transformative, but highly, highly uncertain. So I think together, those are the conditions that we sort of think that are sort of necessary and, and could, could hold to varying degrees of conviction for Roaring Twenty scenario to play out. Quite a few considerations there to be mindful of. With that all in mind, Jason, how likely do you think it is that the U.S. will indeed experience a Roaring Twenties style decade? Well, at this point in time, I'd say our view is it's still kind of like the bull case scenario for the U.S. economy, uh, You know, meaning it's, it's not a base case. It's not like 50 plus percent. But, you know, over the past two years, you know, when I've been sort of talking about a secular outlook, I think that probability has gone up uh, and it's you know, trading higher. So something like a sizable outcome, uh, but not the base case yet. But I'd also say when you think about different scenarios, there isn't one kind of scenario that you can kind of point to with high conviction saying, yes, we will, you know, look like this for the next decade with like 50 plus or 60 percent probability. So I think it is one horse in a race where it's pretty evenly distributed. It's not one absolutely kind of clear cut favorite, um, but a lot of things kind of have to go right for it. Where I think we have a little bit more conviction is that, you know, whatever regime that plays out for the rest of this decade, it's going to be different than what a lot of investors you know, familiar with in the past you know, 15 years, maybe something they've never seen in their professional lives or, or, or if ever. That's one thing I think, you know, that we're kind of have high confidence in. And that's a pretty low bar to make that sort of statement. Uh, the second, though, is, you know, there are structural changes to the economy, and therefore that's also going to contribute to different regimes. So, again, again, gives us high, you know, pretty high confidence that something will be different. Uh, and also, whatever regime kind of plays out, it's going to be determined by what happens in the supply side uh, for the reasons I've already alluded to. Um, so all those things, I think, are high conviction. Whether it leads to a roaring 20s, that's still to be determined. You know, it really comes down to whether the su- supply side developments could be positive, whether investment in CapEx and AI can really lead to productivity growth, you know, picking up, you know, pretty rapidly pretty soon, because then you can get stronger growth that's also not inflationary and allows the Fed not to get, you know, uh, restrictive on rates. So again, a possibility, but, you know, not a, not a guarantee. And the final thing I'll say about sort of the scenario and how to think about it is that while we use the term roaring 20s because it has a nice ring, you know, the 20s, you know, 2020s, people look back to the 1920s, uh, you know, kind of the roaring 20s then. But really the better template for thinking about this to me is the 1990s. Uh, and for a couple of reasons. One, you know, in 1994, the Fed engaged in a pretty significant hiking cycle at the time. They raised rates 200 basis points in about a year uh, and got up all the way up to about 6%. You know, we've hiked or the Fed has hiked rates more this past year and a half. But again, it's, you know, kind of got to the same level very, very quickly. Uh, what happened though in 1995 is that the Fed raised rates and the economy slowed, but it has soft landing. Uh, and you can see in the various economic data, kind of a bit of a pullback. Uh, but then by 1996, the Fed was able to start cutting rates uh, and the economy from, you know, 1996 onwards, you know, we know how the rest of the decades sort have of played out. Then the productivity kind of boom happened. You had very strong growth. Inflation came down. It was, you know, an ideal kind of economic environment. So 
uh, and a lot of those things, keep in mind, weren't you know, predicted or sort of known with high conviction back in 1993. There were political problems then, you know, uncertain election outcomes. Uh, it wasn't at all clear in that time period that the decade would play out the way it did. So while there could be a lot of pessimism right now, um, you know, how things look in three years can look a lot different than they did in 1996 versus 1993. So I think it's also kind of important to keep in mind. But I kind of view that as more of a 90s redux uh, in some form versus a kind of a 1920s type of scenario. I'm curious about the risk side of this, Jason, the risk factors that could perhaps prevent a roaring 20s style decade from taking shape. Might it be the large and growing amount of government debt outstanding contributing to the risk considerations, or might it be something else or a combination? Well, there's certainly many factors that could derail this this outcome. Um, you know, a lot of them relate to you know, say on the political front, like there could be some geopolitical conflict, things escalate in the Middle East between the U.S. and China, uh, Russia, Ukraine war escalates in some way, uh, continued social tensions and political dysfunction in the U.S. to not, to lead, that leads to bad you know, fiscal policies, or at least certainly not addressing, you know, uh, you know, outstanding issues. You know, the, um, you know, the debt situation, you know, could be, you know, not dealt with properly. I'd say all these things, though, in some way they're kind of policy choices, like their actions that could have been gone a different way. Uh, predicting them, of course, is hard because now you're trying to predict uncertain political outcomes, especially even beyond like the next year or so. It's, it's hard to predict these things. There are other factors that could play out, like climate disasters could happen, uh, an energy crisis could materialize, you know, AI could end up being more, uh, you know, sizzles and steak. Like it kind of feels as though it doesn't really amount to very much uh, from a productivity perspective. It's a nice tool to play with, but doesn't really change businesses at all. I think right now there's a lot of focus on on debt, and like you know, one of the comments that since we published the report, people say like it's just not possible because there's so much debt outstanding. Like there's a debt problem out there. I think just as we think about the debt situation, it's really important to distinguish between debt in the public sector and debt in the private sector. In the public sector, especially at the federal government level, the amount of debt outstanding today as a percent of GDP is more than double it was back in the mid 90s. Um, so that clearly is an issue, and with interest rates higher. The financing costs go up. There's clearly a reason to be concerned, especially when you look out longer term, given obligations to entitlement programs. Like this could become a real sort of burden for the economy. Something has to be dealt with at some point in time, which doesn't mean it's going to be an issue for the next two years to derail the scenario I'm talking about. But it's it's an issue outstanding. On the other hand, the private sector is in good financial shape. I alluded to this earlier. They came out of the pandemic. Households in good financial shape. They've delevered. They've locked in at very low rates a lot of their debt. Uh, while well, you're seeing delinquency rates pick up on things like credit cards and all loans, still the delinquency rate overall, at least how much people are sort of paying off their debt, it's still like 98% is on time debt payment. So we're not anywhere near, you know, crisis levels in that regards. And even because interest rates are, had been so low and debt was locked in, the actual percent of income that has to be spent uh, towards servicing debt is about 10% right now. Like in 1994 is around 12%. So Private sector debt is higher as a percent of GDP. Financing costs and total interest payments are lower. And given how much debt is locked in, it will take a long time for that kind of rollover and that to really kind of tick higher. So the debt story for the consumer is not nearly as burdensome as it is in the public sector. So I think as you know, when people start question this, this scenario, it's important to realize, well, the private sector for now can actually has the capability of spending and growing credit for a number of years. The public sector is the one that, that could be a challenge, but I'd rather have the public sector that can issue debt instead of finance and through monetization, you know, be, be constrained as opposed to the private sector. 
that leads to what happens post-financial crisis and, and, and a lower for longer decade. That's not the case right now. Jason, as we wrap up in terms of portfolio positioning, we, we've talked about the U.S. economy doing well, though how should investors think about preparing for a roaring 20s regime to take shape? Well, first, you know, when I say roaring 20s, I'm talking about the U.S. economy, and the economy is not the stock market and vice versa. Uh, you know, the 2010s were not a great decade in terms of growth, uh, inflation or rates. It was the lower for longer decade. You know, it was actually really good for equities, in part perhaps because interest rates were so low. So the, you know, the, the compound annual growth rate of the S&P 500 in the, in the 2010s was in the low teens. Uh, we're not going to repeat that this decade because the starting valuations as of today for equities is higher than the long-term average. And over time, that tends to be a constraint on just how well equities can do. So a good growth Nominal growth environment should be positive for equity returns, but given valuations are expensive, it doesn't necessarily translate into a roaring 20s for the equity markets. And therefore, the idea of like the 1920s, you know, stock market bubble that burst in 2000 and, in 2019, I'm not, you know, we're not saying that necessarily is going to happen. It could be a fine but much more muted equity return environment. Fixed income returns, you know, if yields stay where they are, means now you can actually get decent income and they are a real kind of alternative to equities and you're kind of going forward. Um, one thing that will be kind of different is that in an environment where inflation is higher than it was last decade, between say two to three percent, often with upside risks where a supply chain problem can happen, energy problem can happen, that inflation goes higher, and the Fed therefore has to respond to it, that changes the relationship between stock and bond performance. For 20 years pre-pandemic, stocks and bonds had a really nice negative correlation and made for really good portfolio diversification. That hasn't been the case in the past year and a half since the Fed started raising rates to fight inflation. If inflation still kind of lingers as this problem that flares up every now and then, again, that can weaken the, the, the diversification of bonds versus stocks. Uh, it also means that portfolios become more volatile because instead of moving in opposite directions, stocks and bonds might rally and sell off together. All of which means that you have to think about you know, asset allocation a little bit differently, looking for other asset classes, particularly in the alternative space, that can give you some diversification uh, to your equities that bonds did really well for 20 years, may not do as well going forward. So the roaring 20s economic environment isn't necessarily a fantastic environment for equities, and it can actually have different challenges for constructing portfolios. Uh, and this is a topic we're going to certainly explore more going forward, but I think it's important to distinguish between the economy and the stock market or the financial markets. You know, they can move for different reasons and different considerations, taking into account also, you know, where are things today in terms of valuations? And that drives a lot of performance over time as well. Jason, a fascinating conversation to your point. Do look forward to following up and tracking how this thesis progresses in the years to come. So thank you very much for joining our listeners, our clients to outline your thinking here, Jason. And we'll, of course, keep a close eye on how this all takes shape. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you, Jason. Again, today we have been joined by Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. I will point out to our listeners, especially our clients of UBS, if you would like to receive a copy of the Roaring Twenties publication, which Jason has been making reference to during our conversation today, uh, please be sure to visit UBS.com slash CIO. For clients of UBS, do reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the publication directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.